As many of you pack for holiday abroad, we look at the science behind the travel advice you're used to hearing. We've tips on how to vacation safely in the summer, including how sun cream works. You're listening to the Science Show on Cambridge 105. In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who, for some reason or another, find themselves working, researching, or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. Chris, we've been finally getting a little bit of sun, so tell us what's worth knowing about going out in the sun. Well, there are two important things to remember to stay hydrated by drinking lots of water and protect your skin from harmful ultraviolet rays emitted by the sun. There are three types of UV rays called UVA, UVB, and UVC, but luckily we only have to worry about UVA and UVB because these are the ones that penetrate the Earth's atmosphere. Now, to understand the difference between them, UVA has the longest wavelengths of light, and this allows it to penetrate deeper in our skin than UVB, and it's the primary cause of those frustrating wrinkles we get. UVB is the one that causes sunburn, and it's partially blocked by the ozone layer, so stopping pollutants that degrade the ozone layer is a good long-term skin protection strategy. But for everyday protection, we need to choose a broad-spectrum sun cream that protects us from both UVA and UVB rays. And Roger, you need to read the label because not all sun creams are created equal. In addition to making sure you have both UVA and UVB protection, select a sun cream with the highest possible sun protection factor. Okay, we see sun protection factor lots on bottles. So what does that actually mean? How's it kind of measured? Well, we all have an innate SPF for our skin, which is the amount of time we can withstand sun exposure before we burn. And this depends in part on how much melanin we have, which is that dark pigment in our skin. SPF is essentially a multiplication factor for your natural SPF. So, Roger, if you can stay out in the sun for, let's say, 15 minutes Mm -hmm. before burning, Mm -hmm. and you used a sun cream with an SPF of 10, we would multiply 15 by 10 and know that with properly applied sun cream, you could stay out for 150 minutes before applying it or ducking for cover. Now, the higher the SPF, the longer you can go between applications. And if you plan to be frolicking outdoors in the water or building up a sweat, it's important, too, to select a water and sweat-proof sun cream that will stay on longer. And to take good care of your skin, don't wait until it starts feeling tight or tingly. Set your watch alarm so you reapply your cream at least a few minutes in advance of the estimated time to keep yourself well protected. And do you have any tips on how to properly apply sun cream? For instance, does it work better if I ask the swimsuit model at the beach to apply it for me? Well, that might help to prevent missing a spot on your back, but Mm. the most important thing is to apply it 30 minutes before going out in the sun. And I'm not sure the model would be at your house then. (laughs) But also reapply Mm. frequently and wear protective clothing, hat, and UV-blocking sunglasses because you can't rub sun cream onto your eyes. It's true, too, that over time particles in sun cream can clump, so it helps to shake it first, or you could opt for one of those nifty spray-ons. Just make sure you don't inhale it or miss a spot because that would be a surefire way to get an unsightly sun tattoo. Okay. I've heard some sun creams can be irritating to some people. Why is that? Well, sun creams use a mix of organic and inorganic ingredients that can affect people's skin differently, but they're both important because inorganic ingredients like zinc or titanium oxide, they reflect or scatter UV radiation, and organic ingredients like octomethoxycinamate or oxybenzone absorb UV radiation and dissipate it as heat to prevent skin damage. Now, para-aminobenzoic acid, or PABA as it's commonly referred to, has been frequently used because it's a great absorber of UVB, but it can cause allergic reactions in some people, and studies suggest that it might also cause cellular damage leading to cancer, so many sunscreens are now going PABA-free. Fortunately, there are other organic chemicals like cinnamates and anthronylates that can absorb UVB too, so you really don't need PABA. 
And if something irritates your skin, Roger, I would suggest just keep trying different brands and look for one for sensitive skin until you find something that works. For instance, I have pretty sensitive skin, but I found that Neutrogena SPF 80 works well for me, and it actually kept me from being scorched during those long days of field work in Southern California. Okay, great ad. You mentioned cellular damage. I mean, what actually happens to our skin when it absorbs UV? Mm, That's a good question. Well, the scary truth is that UV radiation doesn't just affect the loveliness of our skin. It actually modifies our very DNA that instructs our cells on how to function properly. And this is UVB, is it? Um, Well, actually, scientists used to think that the negative effects of UVA were mainly cosmetic and just focused on UVB, but we've now realized that it can also indirectly damage our DNA, this UVA, by producing harmful hydroxyl and oxygen radicals. Unfortunately, most sunscreens still aren't tested for how effectively they block UVA, so it's a good idea to still limit your sun exposure even when wearing a sun cream. Now, UVB protection has been better tested, and it's a good thing because UVB radiation is pretty nasty. It's incredible, Roger. It can actually break the entire double strand of our DNA, and this UVB can also mutate our DNA to create zombie cells that can no longer function properly. These cells then have to be programmed for death in a process called apoptosis, where they might proliferate uncontrolled and cause cancer. Um, when you say mutate DNA, which is the sort of the, the, the gene stuff, what, what does that mean? Well, an example would be um, UVB rays can co-opt thymine, which is one of the four important bases in our DNA, to make what we call a dysfunctional thymine dimer. It's a strong bond of two thymines. And this then has to be spliced out of our DNA to make it read properly again. And it's true that our cells have repair machinery, but when you think about it, it's like having to go to the trouble of cutting a typo out of a document rather than a simple wash of the whiteout. It's a lot of work, and the more extensive the damage we have, the more likely it is that the repair will fail, and we don't want extensive cell death or cancer. Nope, we don't want that. I'm going to wear my sun cream. Uh, Me too. (laughs) And I've also been thinking of taking a trip somewhere like Africa, but a friend told us to go somewhere else because they said, you know, the local food and water is just sort of rubbish. I mean, what sort of risks are there and how could we sort of mitigate them to go that far? Well, food and waterborne illnesses tend to be most common while traveling, but that doesn't mean you have to skip a trip to an interesting place like Africa. You just have to be prepared. First, food poisoning is caused by bacteria and their toxins, which can take anywhere from just two hours to several days to reveal itself to you through symptoms of upset stomach, vomiting, and or diarrhea. Not fun. When you're traveling, you don't have control over hygiene practices of the places you visit, but you can be selective about what you eat. So, Roger, it's important to avoid rare or undercooked animal products, mm-hmm. including meats, eggs, seafood, and unpasteurized milk. And the key here is that you want lots of heat because it kills parasites and most bacteria. You can also ask your doctor about using loperamide to treat diarrhea, but if your symptoms are really severe or last for longer than 24 hours, you should seek medical attention. Okay, loperamide is over-the-counter stuff, isn't it? Yes. Um, when I travel, I like to try the local food, sometimes the street food, rather than just eating in the same hotel food every night. I mean, are the risks of eating street food in other countries any worse than they are from buying a burger locally? Hmm, Well, it's difficult to generalize, but I suppose because the risk of food poisoning does go up as careful hygiene practices go down, second and third world countries or food stations where frequent washing isn't possible can be riskier, but they're not necessarily worse than a given food stall in the UK because microbes are really everywhere, and it's the sanitation of the individual that really matters. 
Um, but as Sally Hurst said, a good rule of thumb is to avoid things that are lukewarm, so make sure your food is piping hot, and you can do a little checking to find out if the food has been sitting around for more than a couple hours, in which case you should avoid it. And if the local water isn't potable, definitely avoid fresh vegetables and fruits that have been washed in unsafe water. Oh dear. So, what sort of water bugs might we have to deal with if you do that? Well, the waterborne illnesses are very common and are caused by a plethora of different things, including bacteria, viruses, protozoa, and parasitic helminths, which are like worms that live in your gut, the kinds of hitchhikers you really don't want, Roger. Mm -hmm. If you're visiting a country with inadequate water sanitation or you'll be drinking surface water in the wilderness, you'll really need to be careful here. So what are our options if we're going to avoid these kind of body hitchhikers? Well, first you should find out if the local water is potable, because you might be in Mexico, for instance, but it won't necessarily mean you can't drink the water in a particular spot. Some places you'll be okay, and knowledge is power. Uh, second, if you have any doubts, just don't take a chance. Drink bottled water and make sure that the sanitation seal has not been broken, as sometimes vendors may sell water bottles that they've actually refilled from local sources. But plastic isn't so great for the environment, and you won't always be able to purchase water, so it's best to be prepared with one or more water purification options. And Roger, I'll put a link up on our website for a comparison of water treatment options. But as an example, you could boil water for at least one minute. Mm -hmm. um, you might try using halogen, such as iodine tablets. You could also try ultraviolet radiation with a portable battery-operated unit. But fair warning that this only works in smaller volumes of clear water because suspended particles could shield microorganisms from UV rays. And another tip is to make sure you wash your hands before handling your food and water so you don't recontaminate it. And what's the best way to stay clean yourself? I mean, what about these um, antibacterial hand gels that we use a lot? That's a good question. Well, actually, frequent hand washing with soap and water is the best way to keep your hands clean. This is because that antibacterial hand gel doesn't get rid of viruses, and it may not be effective against all types of bacteria. But if you're salivating at a street food stall, for instance, um, and you're in a pinch, it's better than nothing. But hand gel is no great solution because it also strips away moisture and the normal flora of non-pathogenic bacteria from our skin. So it's not ideal, but if you're looking for a way to not smell like the animals you're watching on mm -hmm. safari and you still want a dermicide, there might be a better option. Uh, a student, Ludwig Marischain, a 22-year-old South African undergraduate, he invented last year this waterless cleaning film called Dry Bath. And it doesn't have that heavy alcohol smell, and fantastically, it's biodegradable and includes moisturizers. And it's being sold now to airlines and government military, and hopefully you can buy it soon to take on your travels. Okay, no more baths for airline pilots and soldiers. I'm going to have to look that up. What other things should we look, watch out for, do you think? Well, a good thing to do would be to go to Google and type in World Health Organization and travel so you can look up the area to where you'll be traveling and figure out what you'll be up against and what vaccinations you might need. And there are lots of critters that might want to cohabitate with you, but they're not necessarily vectors for human disease. So, Roger, you don't need to freak out about bugs, but it is wise to take some precautions against the ones that are vectors for disease. For instance, if you're going to be bushwhacking or walking through grassy fields, to avoid ticks and the possibility of contracting Lyme's disease, tuck your trouser legs into your socks and thoroughly and regularly check yourself for any ticks that might be clinging on, especially in nooks like the armpit and waistband where they like to hide out. Mm, I just did. <laughs> and all clear? <laughs> Excellent. Uh, mosquitoes are also frustrating vectors because they carry a number of diseases, um, malaria, dengue fever, yellow fever, and West Nile virus, and they're always looking for the next blood source. So if you find out from your doctor what anti-malarial medication you'll need for a specific area, that's really key because some of the medications work better than others for particular regions. And as Sally Hurst advised, 
It's important to wear insect repellent with DEET and clothes with long pants and sleeves and use a mosquito net while sleeping to further lower your risks. I think you meant trousers, Chris. Uh, Any tips on vaccinations, then? I'm always told to get jabs. (laughs) Well, your first line of defense is to be really mindful of what you're in contact with on holiday because vaccinations, although effective, are not 100% guaranteed. For instance, I'd actually been living in the jungle for a year when my university sent me an email to let me know that my vaccinations had not been stored at the proper temperature and might not have been effective. (laughs) Now, that kind of thing is rare, but it does happen. Some vaccines also take multiple shots, like yellow fever and hepatitis, so it's best to check in with your GP at least once yearly to make sure you're up to date on everything and to give yourself enough time for multiple shots. It might also be a good idea, Roger, if you look into travel health insurance. So if by some chance you did get sick or need medical attention, you can receive the proper treatment without worry of cost or convenience. Okay. Well, I'm going to check my vaccine and jabs and lists and start planning. Well, my pleasure, Roger. And you'll have to share your photos of your next trip with us. I might just not. (laughs) Oh, not the ones with the swimsuit models at the beach? Mm -hmm. Maybe definitely not. That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio, Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website, www.cambridge105.fm. You can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes Store. You can get in touch with us on the email science at cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105science. Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team of Roger Frost and Chris Crease. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105.